Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Geek Rant, episode 300. This is Sparta! Brought to you by Element OP Productions. ElementOP.com. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the. To, to, what did I start it called? Oh, yeah, Geek Gov. Uh, that it. Uh, it's just over. I can't do it. Um, I'm not Take even going to try to go it. No, no, we're just going to leave it. It's just there. All right. Um, <laughs> we didn't get to 300 episodes by being good at what we do. Um, so, by the way, recorded uh, August 27th, 2017, the last show of August uh, 2017, which means we'll begin uh, our theme month of September next week. As soon as we decide what that theme is going to be, um, we have some ideas, I think, maybe. Um, to Stay tuned. You gotta be careful with S. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the, the last thing we talked about was Strategic September, where we'll talk about various strategies for various things, like a, uh, you can wrap up anything there. Security, uh, backups, uh, disaster recovery, uh, you know, anything, any, anything strategic, um, you know, chess moves. Whatever. Better than naming Strategery. an released. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, welcome to our 300th episode. And uh, Seth put that title in there, This is Sparta, hence the, from the movie The 300. If you haven't seen that, well, you're not really missing much. Um, and the, the, you're, the, there's just the, the joke. We're going to have our podcast in the shade. Um, and... Uh, this is Mark. I'm, I'm so discombobulated. I just have to apologize in advance. My weekend has been just super busy, running from one thing to the next, uh, Friday night and then Saturday and then today, uh, just running from one thing to the next. So I am I am not in, in the proper headspace. I need to to meditate for a moment to, to do the show. And while I do that, let me introduce to you my co-hosts, Seth the Gooey Kid Anderson and Miles the Ostage and Airwaken. Hello, gentlemen. Hey, Mark, and welcome to the Faithful Opiites. Glad you're still here. And it's tricentenary for the uh, Geek Grant podcast, right? Sure, we can go with that. Go I actually that. think we're more than that uh, because there were a couple of, or really less, it all depends on how you count it, right? So we did a couple of rebroadcasts, some of which we renumbered. Does that really count if we're just rebroadcasting episode 59 on episode 121? I don't think we've actually given you 300 pieces of new content don't, don't tell them that don't tell them <laughs> no it does because if when we rebroadcasted we would like we each picked one i remember this and we gave a little blurb at the beginning i'm rebroadcasting this one because right. i thought it was the best or something yeah, like that so we made it new it's it's sort of like during the writer strikes you know you have like two scenes of all the main characters talking about right. the clip you know, show. the battle they just got out yeah. of or something so yeah or or when they do something on the discovery channel like they'll replay the, the the episode from two weeks ago but with little pop-up video type things and that call you know the, that's enough to make the dvr call it new and make me watch it or or the classic clip show where previously on the dangerous alaskan wildlife of the sahara um and and they just show all stuff that they've already shown before but call it new so I think we're in good company. Yeah, and we haven't done that much. So yeah, we've got, we've got a lot of fresh stuff here uh, in the course of our 300 episodes. More than you get when you talk, count to 300 in most other feeds. Yeah, okay. I, I'm not going to play the comparison game. I'll just say that uh, we have matured greatly since episode one. I'm proud of the product we put out, and I hope that it continues on uh, for another um you know, five years. Having said that, my bill came due for hosting today. 
holy crap, you people need to give me money. That's that's just all I'm going to say. Um, <laughs> Patreon.com slash elementopi.com slash Patreon um, or go to the element elementopi.com uh, website and use the tip jar and send me stuff there. Really, uh, I have for, it comes the bill comes due every year, and then I forget how much I'm paying for hosting every year. God, you people need to give me money. That's just all I'm saying. Uh, let's just say it was more than the episode title, and leave it at that. So, uh, pay me now, please. Or we'll start e begging. <laughs> I. I I listen to dozens of podcasts, literally 50 or so in the course of an average week. And so much of their time is spent either flogging for donations or flogging a product. We don't do either of those things. And, and I, I, I kind of feel in some ways, you know, it's, it's a, a you know, kind of a, a high horse sort of thing. We don't beg for money. But also, I'm, it, the fact is, when you ask for money, people give you money. When you don't ask for money, people don't give you money. So I've been really trying to walk that balance between um, just reminding you that this is listener-supported uh, stuff and, and that everything that we do here, the what it cost us, the, the, the equipment that we use, the, uh, the bandwidth that we burn, the serv- server hosting, the space, and all that sort of stuff, that, that all comes out of somebody's pocket. Um, and you're getting this for free, um, literally for free it does it's not costing you anything it's not even costing you ads most of the time so you bear some responsibility as a listener in that but i I hate to i hate to keep bringing it back even though my mantra for 2017 has been pay for what you like i've talked more about uh supporting things that you like but i haven't spent a lot of time talking about giving me money um so however having just paid the hosting bill give me money people (laughs) you heard the man (laughs) yeah you know like you watch a YouTube video and of course, you know, YouTube, what, when Google decided, Hey, let's monetize, you know, with YouTube red or whatever to get people to do that. Let's now insert four times as many ads as there used to be. But even, you know, on their videos, Hey guys, be sure and like, and subscribe to make sure you stay up to date on all the rest. Be sure and click the like and subscribe down there. And once you click the like and subscribe, you'll get all the notifications because you liked and subscribe. And that's like added to every video. And then when he starts talking for real, Hey, guys i just want to remind y'all to take a minute and like this video and subscribe to my web feed if you haven't already i'm like dude you just spent one minute bombarding (laughs) me over the head with that and then of course at the end you know you can you can usually shave off the last two or three minutes of most things you watch on youtube because again it's just them begging for like and subscribe or thanking all their patreon subscribers by name um uh yeah but i don't mind that so much yeah it's it's a thing um people need to make money um and if you're making if you're posting things on on youtube we do it's an afterthought of what we do we're an audio podcast i produce the show i put it out on my website there's an rss feed that's how 99.999 percent of the people view it there are a handful of people literally less than five who routinely uh view the show via youtube so youtube is is an afterthought for this particular show maybe we should be chasing out audience more maybe not but frankly I'm too ugly to expect you to sit and watch me for 90 minutes. I just, I don't have that expe- expectation. In fact, I don't wish that on anybody. Uh, I don't know why those of you who watch it on YouTube do. Um, but monetizing YouTube has been a problem since they started the monetizing scheme. I, I mean, originally you, it wasn't, it was just free. And then they added some monetization and then it became a, a battle between the publishers and the and the consumers. Uh, and Miles has found a, a new thing that may free us from all of that. 
Yeah, I found dtube.video, dtube.video. That is the website, and here's what it is. It's a YouTube alternative, and it became a thing. I actually found out about this from a bunch of YouTube uh, hosters who had been, I, I guess there are really strict rules on what you're allowed to say, post, and, and all that stuff on YouTube these days. And if people drop F-bombs or whatever on there, they demonetize their videos. And uh, not to say that that's the whole reason. They often do it for copyright video music or whatever. But a bunch of people were feeling uh, that they were getting unfairly uh, demonetized on YouTube and were looking for an alternative. And, and I watched somebody's video who discovered this thing called DTube.video. And uh, I had a look at it. And I tell you what, it's actually very interesting. Um, here's what it is. It's a blockchain-based YouTube. So what happens is they, they use the Bitcoin blockchain or the Ethereum blockchain. One of the, no, I'm sorry, the Steam blockchain. And uh, what happens is you post your video up there. So it's there and you can't unpost it, you know, because it's in the blockchain. And this DTube thing reads all the feeds off the blockchain and then displays in YouTube-like form uh, all the videos by categorization. And, and, you know, they give it ratings so that you can have your kids watch it with, by getting rid of all the not safe for work stuff. You can put that off to the side so you don't see it. But um, it's pretty good. And, and here's the cool thing. If people like your video, they can pay you with Steam. Now, have you guys heard of Steam before? Never before nope. this. Okay. Well, Steam is an interesting little cryptocurrency altcoin thing that came up a, a while back. A lot of people made a lot of money on this thing. But basically, uh, people who are blogging, and uh, would put a lot of content out um, on blogs and so on. They were not getting paid for all of their work. A lot of them might have been traveling journalists or, or people like that. So they, uh, they found a site called Steamit, steamit.com, in, uh, in which they could post their, their blogs and their articles and kind of Facebook-like sort of, sort of thing. And uh, if you liked it, you could actually kind of tip them if you like you know it's like steam is like a very mini altcoin and you can kind of tip them and what would happen is that the more times their uh, articles were being read the more money they were making in terms of steam tokens and steam tokens then were able to be converted to bitcoin so they could monetize uh, their blogs um, that was huge because it, it did a couple of things. One is it made it profitable for the author. And the second thing was it got rid of all of the um, spam comments because people weren't going to start commenting, you know, all these stupid YouTube level content comments if it had to cost them a token or something to do so. So um, it kind of became like a filtering mechanism. Well, the exact same technique is the basic concept of DTube. You put your videos up on DTube. And people who can like or comment or whatever can contribute Steam, very inexpensive, cheap tokens as kind of a tip. And you accumulate these and then eventually convert them to Bitcoin and then into fiat or whatever you want. So um, there's nobody saying, hey, you can't post that. So, you know, with that, be warned. You, know, you may come across stuff that you find offensive or you don't like. Uh, just, you know, don't watch that stuff. But if you find – I found some amazing videos up there just – wandering around looking at different things that I've never seen before. Um, I think it's worth it. I think it's worth a look. I'm, I'm trying to understand it. I, I have literally just started watching it while you were talking um, since you heard the, the, the audio there. Um, 
and I just uh, it looks like the early days of YouTube. It really does. Yeah, um, it is early, and you know it's 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 kind of yeah low quality co- content. Not the site. Uh, the site may or may not be low quality. I can't really tell, but uh, the uh, the the content certainly doesn't seem to be up to the quality of youtube which is kind of surprising because there's lots of really low quality stuff on youtube but it is early days and i like the fact that it's it's free i mean it's not free that there that there is a cost involved um um in some way what i'm not sure i'm understanding is how where is this stuff stored it's stored in the in the chain like no it's it's it's, uh ipfs um the internet protocol file system so people have to volunteer chunks of their hard drives to allow for the because we all know that if if this takes off like youtube uh exponential storage will be required um and so people have to volunteer their hard drive space in order for people to put stuff up right i think so but i'm going to admit ignorance because ipfs is not something i've studied but i am very interested in doing so and i may be able to come back with a proper report my, my guess is it's kind of like BitTorrent. while you're watching the video you're actually serving it um and then when you finish maybe you stop serving i i'm not sure how that exactly works but um, my experience with it was it was incredibly fast um i didn't see any buffering or any speed issues it was pretty quick but yeah, I, I hear what you're saying about it being lower quality. It's it is early days. The content providers have not yet discovered it. It's very new. Um, it's probably just the start of something. Maybe in twelve months' time, it'll be a different looking thing. But uh, I think I don't know. I looked at it. And I thought you know, in principle, decentralized video, no central control system, an ability to monetize it, and uh, a decent looking user interface that they can certainly improve over time. I think it's got legs. It might work. Yeah. We'll see. I'm not ready to uh, to put my content up there just because there's so little value to me right now in it um, because we just don't have people watch. I don't, maybe, maybe there would be more. I don't know. Um, well, I am unable to access it from Texas. I've, I've tried in a couple of different places. I am interested. I created a video, and uh, I put it up on YouTube and Facebook, and I was just like, you know, hey, I would like to throw it up there and just to see what happens, and maybe people are watching and go, yep, you did just kind of throw that up. So, um, But anyway, so I don't know if maybe it's just a, you know, a routing issue um, or something, but I, I want to get in and play with it. It sounds like it would be fun. So if you're having problems accessing it when you hear this, you're not alone. I've been uh, just sort of randomly typing in search uh, terms as we've been talking. And, of course, uh, there are hits on the typical stuff, naked, porn, um, uh, that sort of stuff. But also poker, chess, um, you know, pretty much anything I've come up with, it's at least served me a video. Whether it's a relevant search, um, I'm not really sure. Uh, But uh, let's see, Android, what do I get? Um, Yeah, it's, it's all... Like how-to type stuff, um, 10 cool Android nougat tricks and hidden features 12 days ago. Um, and it's this particular one has not been monetized at all. You go to their homepage, and so there's some stuff up there that it says is uh, minutes old and already has like 100 bucks. Um, it's interesting concept. I'm not sure I'm on board with it yet, but we'll see. Keep it on your radar. 
I will. Miles is good at finding the the early things and then making me regret that I didn't jump on early I'm on. Not so. always. <laughs> Roll the dice, buddy. <laughs> uh, while we're talking about things that I'm not sure will catch on, uh, you guys familiar with movie pass i mean it's been all over the news lately so i'm assuming you've heard about it uh i just haven't talked about it are you familiar with the concept is that when you heard about a movie ticket yeah so it's essentially it's a ten dollar a month and you can get a movie ticket a day um it's an app on your phone um i haven't i haven't tried it but the way i understand it is you um dedicate a, a credit card of some sort you you give it give them the credit card information um, you then go buy a movie ticket and they refund your credit card like instantly for that movie ticket. Um, and movie, the, the movie theaters don't like it. AMC has, has threatened to ban anybody who uses it, but I can't really understand why, because they're getting their full movie ticket price. Um, and if it encourages people to go to the movies, I don't really know why they're mad about it. I also don't understand how they can make, uh, any money at $10 a month. Which is, I don't know if I said that, it's $10 a month flat rate for one one movie per day. You can't watch the same movie more than once. You can't watch IMAX or the 3D stuff, but for just a movie, you can do that as many times as you want, or up to one a day, uh, rather, for $10. Now, most movie theaters in my area, a ticket is between, between uh, $8 and $12, depending on where I go. So, for me, if I watch two movies a month, um, I... I come out ahead on this deal. Now, I, it, it's only for one person, so I would have to have an account, and my wife would have to have an account if we wanted to go, and then I'd have to have accounts for each of my three kids if we wanted to go. So there's, it's a little clunky, but the concept of um, up to 30 movies a month for $10 certainly seems appealing for a movie lover such as myself. Uh, and on the months that I don't get to go movie, sometimes there's a whole month there just aren't movies I want to see, or where my schedule doesn't allow me to take time out to go see a movie so i could i could see two three four five months a year go by that i don't um go to a movie at all which is i i have a feeling that's how movie pass is trying to make their money off of this they're they're playing the odds that the vast majority of people won't go to see more than one movie a month um and will keep paying ten dollars a month i mean i can see that you know because how many how many people do something and then they forget and they don't look at their statements and you know 995 is not a i'm going to dispute this charge you're just like i don't see any 250 dollar charges on there my my uh statement's good and yeah, then you I, forgot about it and you end up buying a movie ticket anyway so they they double dipped off of you and that you know gym memberships have been designed like that from the beginning they don't expect you to go to the gym if everybody had a membership went to the gym there wouldn't be enough room or enough equipment. They expect a low percentage of people to actually go to the gym. Uh, this is done by uh, Mitch Lowe, who was a, a Netflix exec early in the days and was actually um, one of the key proponents of them moving to streaming back when everybody said streaming can't work. Uh, so it's a guy with a track record. Um, and I just, I, I'm curious if any, if any of our audience has any experience with it. I haven't signed up for it yet, but I think I probably will give it a try for a couple of months and just see how it goes. Uh, as far as I can tell, there is no downside to the movie theaters, which makes me, I don't know why they're arguing about it. Uh, or maybe it's the fact that it, that it isn't any 3d or IMAX and that's where they want people to go. I don't, I don't really know why they're upset about it. 
Uh, it gets you in the anything that gets you in the movies and buying their twelve dollar uh, an ounce popcorn would be a good thing for them, I would think. Yeah, because they never make money on the movies, right? They only right. make it on the confectionery. Yeah, and those things have gotten so out of hand. Like when I went and saw the house last week, I was like, okay, you know, it's a cheap movie theater. I'm going to get my drink and popcorn. Look over at the concession stand. You know, small drink, small popcorn, eleven dollars. Yeah, it's and I'm always like, no. What, whatever the price of the movie is, the concessions is more. Always. Yeah, I mean, it was it was less than two dollars to get into the movie theater. Yeah. But I'm still not paying 11 bucks for, you know, drinking popcorn. I mean, had it been 5 or $6, I would have done that. But $11? You, you, you're kidding me. Yeah, so. so typically what we do, we try to go to matinee when the prices are the lower. So I'm taking five people. Let's call it $5 a person. It's usually more than that. But let's say that's what it is. It's usually more like 7 here. Um, so that's $25. Uh, let's go with the higher number, $35. Uh, and then we usually get uh, a large bucket of popcorn and then like three drinks that we, that we split between us. Like the, the, the two youngest share a drink and mom and dad share a drink, you know, uh, yeah, I know germs and all that sort of stuff, but that's, that's typically how we, cause we can't afford to do it otherwise. And then we might get like a, a $19 package of M&Ms, um, to, so that everybody gets one M&M. Uh, and in the end, I've paid $35 to get in the, the theater and $45 on snacks. So it's 100 bucks to go to the movies with my family if we, if we buy this stuff. And I, I kind of feel compelled to because I know that the theater isn't making money on the movies. I enjoy the movie experience. I want the big comfy seats. I want the stadium seating. I know I have to pay for that. Hence what I've been saying for months now, pay for what you like. I want that experience. I know that my ticket doesn't cover that experience, so I feel compelled to buy some concessions. But routinely, it is as much or more than the price of admission. Yeah, I, I, you know, I mean, I, I just think that I'm, I'm, of course, I'm cheap. And so to me, they're way overpriced. Um, you know, not so much the cost to get in, but the concessions once you're there, you know, and that, a lot of it has to do with the draconian finance um, things like, OK, you'll give us 97 percent of the box office in the first two weeks and then whatever, whenever most of the money's made. And so, you know, I, I don't how are films going to last you know everything it's going to be netflix because i mean you know you got a 60 inch tv in your home you got the stereo sitting just right you got the recliner you can hit pause um you know there's not there's not this uh 25 year old couple who brought their two-month-old child into a movie who's sitting right behind you and that child is just whining all the time and they're talking to each other and it's just like you know movie how are movie theaters going to survive it's just something's got to happen you know and of course you know we all know the stars are worth the multi-million dollars they make and so i guess the only option is is for me to spend you know two or three hours of working wage just to go to a movie and i think that's wrong well, if you want to get mathematically uh, geeky about it, um, that's a classic example of the explore-exploit algorithm. Um, you you have to decide your resources, uh, how you're going to spend it. If you keep exploiting, say, gold mine uh, indefinitely without ever exploiting, uh, exploring for a new vein, you will mine the, the gold out and you'll run out. But every dollar you spend exploring, 
is not spent exploiting. And so there's there's whole fields of thought on this where they're trying to uh, find the perfect balance, the the perfect algorithm that gives optimal explore exploit. Um, and that's what's happening in movie theaters right now. Like uh, in the 90s, um, let's say 1990, um, typically you would see 20%, I'm making these numbers up, don't hold me to it, but, but they've passed the sniff test. 20% of the movies that would be released in a year would be sequels. And the other 80% would be new stuff. The explore exploit curve was heavy in the explore range. You make a lot of stuff inexpensively and you see what sticks. So you had a lot of cheap movies in the 80s and 90s. Um, some of them became classics. You know, John Hughes movies uh, defined a generation, but they were all cheap movies um, uh, that were just throwing against the wall and see what sticks. You, you fast forward to 2017, it's all exploit, no explore. And so they're spending all their budget instead of making 100 movies, uh, uh, Marvel. Instead of making 100 movies, they're making one or two a year. And uh, they're spending hundreds of millions of dollars on these movies, and they're exploiting it while they can. And now, you know, every other movie, even more than that, I would say 70%. Again, I haven't done the numbers, just passing the sniff test. About 70% of all the movies that you see are part of a franchise. Maybe not a direct sequel, but part of a franchise. They're exploiting. Um, And in my experience... When when you see that explore exploit curve swing to the exploit side is always when the industry dies. It happened in the oil industry. It happened in the the software industry. It happened in the the uh, real estate industry more than once. Uh, and so this is a harbinger of doom that 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 they're not exploring and they're entirely exploiting. So I think you're right, Seth. They can't continue in the way they are. So the choice is either make small cheap movies and a bunch of them or find an entirely different line of work. And as a movie lover, I hope that they go back to exploring uh, exploring a little bit. How's that for a geek rant? <laughs> Good. Okay. I like that. That was nice. I <laughs> I hadn't thought of it in those terms, but Well, I'm I'm currently reading a book called Alg- Algorithms to Live By and uh <laughs> the chapter on explore exploit was just a couple of days ago so it was fresh in my mind and, uh, and you know when i'm thinking about it i took stats in high school i mean in college I, I learned all this stuff but when it's fresh in your mind you look around and you see oh yeah i see that everywhere um so yeah and i got to do you know five minutes of podcasting on it so uh, it's a win so yeah that makes that a business expense mark <laughs> awesome <laughs> um I, I did also want to say Defenders last week when I sat behind this mic, I said I'd watch two episodes and I was unimpressed. Episode three is when it kicked up. So uh, if you're bored after two episodes, give it give it that third episode. Uh, I've now watched five. There's only eight episodes. So uh, I, episode six, seven, and eight are to come. Um, it's a little formulaic. You know, heroes come together, strife, hero walks away, hero comes back fight 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 strife hero walks away it's but you know as as joseph campbell told us there's only uh one hero story and it's been told a thousand times um but so overall so far i'm enjoying it overall uh a fine addition to the the marvel netflix uh edition uh, i'm kind of thinking i'm going to get to the end of it and and it's going to be i'm going to wish there were more than than eight episodes but we'll see so last week i was meh this week i'm two uh one and a half thumbs up okay um yeah all right so i've talked about something neither of you seen so that's not really <laughs> good for a comment so uh what happened when trump came to arizona smiles it was a nightmare <laughs> 
and I'm not. This is got not, this is not political. I'm not. But we're all kind of going. Why? Why did he want to come here? What was the point of this? It was a big rally. So, if, if for people who don't realize it, on last Tuesday, which I'm not sure what the date was, but anyway, Trump decided to come to Phoenix to be, do a big rally with his uh, supporters. And they went downtown to the Phoenix Convention Center and pretty much shut the town down. And um, we have some friend of our, friends of ours, and uh, one of them is a police officer, and we were going to go out to dinner that night and uh, couldn't because uh, she got called in to be on call for work because of the uh, Trump train coming in. Anyway, um, it seemed like it was going to be a peaceful uh, rally, um, and this is following some rather non-peaceful rallies in Virginia from the previous week, not not Trump rallies, but, you know, uh, supremist stuff. Right. Anyway, so he came to town. He did his thing. Um, straight afterwards, on the north side of the convention center, major riots. I mean, we're talking police in black, you know, the whole riot gear, the shields, the helmets, tear gas canisters, shooting less lethal ammunition, crowds throwing rocks back at them, tear gas. It, it was like it was like something. I, I felt like I was watching the news from Venezuela. You know, it wasn't – it was in my hometown here and I'm watching this thing portraying and I'm thinking it's easy to be critical of one side, the other side, who started it, who threw that, you know, all this sort of overkill force that the police were using. At the same time, why? <laughs> why did – the guy's not campaigning for anything. He's already won the presidency. Why does he need to be here to do this and cause this unrest again? Because presidents um, never stop campaigning. They're always campaigning. I don't remember Bush doing that. I don't remember Obama doing it after he it, was president. I definitely started with the Clintons and definitely uh, George W. Bush and and uh, uh, President Obama both. I mean, all of them have, have been oh. have been in, in, in campaign mode. I, I, Clinton was the most egregious, and I think Trump is, uh, is, is getting close to him. He's just – he's got to be seen – to be, you know, to be talked about, you know, Trump's mantra or MO from early on has been all publicity is good publicity. And, uh, and he, as a president, he still, you know, is following that mantra. Yeah. Well, and plus, remember, there is a sizable percentage who, I mean, President Trump could tomorrow say, I am liquidating every penny in my name and I am giving it all to the country for education or whatever. And there are people who would say Trump is evil and the government shouldn't take that money just because it was Trump. I mean, and so, and they seem to want to follow him around. And I would love to say, you know, Mr. Tr president Trump, you need to be in Washington being the president passing legislation. But I've come to the realization that our government really doesn't do much but attempt to maintain and increase its power, it doesn't do a lot of governing. So really, there's not much to be done in the current American political landscape than go around and hold rallies. So um, I guess he's doing what's most effective because, you know, really, let, let's face it. He's not. I mean, he ran on the Republican ticket, but he is not a Republican, nowhere no. close to a Republican. And so his his legitimacy is 
tied to the populace. So he has to do things to keep that connection with the populace. Otherwise, he would have, you know, no legitimate hold on the presidency. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense, what you said. I think that that's absolutely true. Um, I, my concern was just that the previous week we had some major issues in regards to, um, you know, the the neo-Nazis and so on and all of that, and then the riots and the and the Antifa and the, all of the people going up against it that you, you think, you know, the climate right now is on tender hooks and it probably isn't a good idea to unnecessarily come to a town, even though the mayor of Phoenix told him not to come. I mean, literally said to him, not a good idea, don't come. He yeah. came and then there were riots. Now, they weren't anything like Virginia, but... We don't need any more riots. <laughs> well, you know, let's let's be careful not to blame Trump for rioters. Uh, well, yeah, you know, they they were idiots being idiots, and they were just he was the handy excuse. Um, so I, I want to be careful not to send that message. We don't believe that President Trump started the riots. He he may right. have list, he may have uh, not followed sound advice, but then again, all presidents do that, and idiots chose to to do damage. To get their their message out, they would have found something else to do damage about. If you if you just, if you're going to riot, you're going to riot about anything at some point in time. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure if you guys saw some of the video footage, but probably the funniest thing, which is still circulating around here, was seeing one of the rioters cop a. Uh, I think it was either a less lethal or a tear gas can uh, grenade into the crotch area. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> That's uh, yeah. I don't know what and side it, of the of the political equation you're on, but that it, went down as funny. Every police officer should be aiming for the crotch every time. I think. Right. <laughs> I I read that he got arrested too for because he kicked the canister back at the police officers. So he oh, yeah. was arrested on several charges of like I. The technical term wasn't assault, but it was basically assaulting a police officer uh, right. because he kicked tear gas at them. And so I thought that I thought that whole video exchange that was it was hilarious and it was <laughs> it was good Facebook material. So uh, absolutely, totally. Stop with the rioting, people. Uh, th- there's. I'm not going to say there's never a time for rioting. There may be a time when riots are appropriate, but. In my lifetime, I've never seen one. Yeah, I don't think they ever did. I'm, you know, I lived through the LA riots, and I don't think we ever saw anything good come out of that. Right, I mean, not in the end. I mean, you know, storming the Bastille. You know, you could argue there was a historical uh, value to doing that. There have been times when riots have had uh, a just cause and created you know, uh, real change. But I would, I would say going all the way back to world war two, there just haven't been any valid riots. Somebody can correct me if I'm wrong, but I just, I just don't think it's, it's counterproductive on all sides and it just makes you look stupid. And now we're not saying that rioting is the same as protesting. So those are two separate animals. And I mean, excellent I, I, point, Seth. You idiots out there that think there is no difference. <laughs> rioting is not protesting. Protesting is not rioting. Excellent point, Seth. Mm-hmm. And and you know, got my one for the day. <laughs> when you burn down the store in your neighborhood so that now you can't get milk, bread, and eggs, 
because you're angry at somebody who's not the store owner anyway, you know, you're not doing any good. Writing is just an excuse to steal other people's stuff. You know, it's almost enough to make you want to move to Mexico. (laughs) Segway. (laughs) I'm not moving to Mexico, but we're considering buying some property in Mexico. Um, And uh, I don't know. It's a, it's a long story. Basically, Arizona borders with Sonora, Mexico, and and all of the media coverage is upon people coming from Mexico into Arizona and building a wall and stopping the illegals and the whole – all of that stuff is what gets the headlines. What people forget is that a lot of us Arizonians, and not just us, Canadians and all state representatives of America, often travel south into Sonora – and what you find when you get down there, particularly when you get past the uh, what they call the 21-kilometer free zone, uh, is a beautiful seaside mecca um, along the Sea of Cortez, which is a protected inlet from the Pacific Ocean, which happens to be one of the greatest uh, deep-sea fishing uh, places in the world, uh, famous for very large marlin. But also uh, a lot of uh, whale, uh, sperm whale, and even orca whale uh, live in the Sea of Cortez. And there's a few towns that are within um, easy reach of Arizona, about four or five hour drive, that are on the town that have become havens for American and Canadian expatriates, where about 80% of the population in the town are all Americans, for the most part, um, living in beautiful uh, properties, very exclusive uh, places, no crime, no uh, big issues like that, eating, you know, 75-cent tacos and 50-cent beers and having a great time by the beach with beautiful white sand and great blue glistening oceans, Uh, going out fishing, watching the whale come in, the dolphin, the whole bit. It's absolutely idyllic, and um, the, the particular place I'm talking about is called San Carlos, and uh, we've been there many times, and we're thinking about going down there and scoring a little bit of a place for ourselves down there, and it's kind of uh, just an escape route. Just sometimes, you know, Phoenix is very hot, so getting out of here in the summer is never a bad idea, but it's just nice to have somewhere down there by the ocean that you can, you can get to. So, yeah, we're probably going to go down the next couple of weeks and spec it out, see if we can find something, and uh, maybe one of these days you'll see me uh, doing the podcast with the Sia Cortez in the background. So TLDR version of that, uh, white American millionaire exploits uh, third world (laughs) people uh, for uh, second lake house. Yeah, drop and give me 50. (laughs) No, yeah, no, yes, kind of. I don't know. You are the one percent, Miles. Oh, jeez. Sorry. Um, and then Seth, um, it. I, I can't. I got nothing. Um, you, you, you doing some uh, Mario gaming? I got nothing. No, I'm. Uh, you know, working on fixing up our my rent house. Uh, my niece is going to be moving in there, and so I had to install a hot water heater, which is a very simple thing to do when you pay attention, and when you're not paying attention. <laughs> 
you end up having to make four trips to the Home Depot, which is 30 miles away because you work on it after five o'clock when all the local stores close. And, you know, you buy the plumbing and then you forget this fixture and then you measured this fixture. At least you thought you measured it, but you didn't. And so you bought the one that was too short. And then you grab this fixture because it had the right end, but you didn't see that you picked the wrong one because the one next to it had the other end. And so anyway, I got the hot water heater installed. And then when I turned it on, I realized that when we moved the washing machine so we could clean behind it, we never turned the water off. And so, you know, I walk out to the road to turn off the water at the meter. When I come back to turn it, I hear this sound. I open up the door and water is shooting out of the um, the inlet for the washing machine and it, it can reach the ceiling. And uh, anyway, and so then I had to run back out and got my exercise and steps in for the day turning uh, off the water, turning off hoses. And then, you know, the house didn't burn down or blow up or anything when I installed the hot water heater. So I still know how to do the plumbing stuff. It just goes faster when you pay attention. So, you know, measure twice, cut once, stop and think about it and do it again before you go buy anything. And hire Fun times. Plumber. Yay. And hire a plumber. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, no, don't hire a plumber because it's simple. It's just... uh. Like I say, I, my mind was preoccupied while I was doing this. And and it's one of those things, if you know how to do something, but you don't do it often enough to keep that knowledge in the front of your head, it's like, wait a minute, what am I doing? Oh, I know what to do. I just go grab these things. And it's like, oh, crap, I forgot that one yeah. thing. And so, you know, it's good to keep in practice because plumbers can get expensive. Indeed. Maybe, maybe not four round trips to Terrell expensive, but... Anyway, you know, now I, I have a story. We've all been there. I mean, I, yeah. I, it may not be plumbing. It could be electrical. It could be electronic. Um, we've all been there. Yeah, I have never replaced a water heater, but I've watched it done several times, and it looks like a lot of work. No, it's, it's really not difficult. Generally, the hardest part of replacing a water heater is getting it in and out of whatever enclosure it's in. Yeah, of course, this is in a trailer house, and so um, the one I bought wasn't quite as narrow, and so it wouldn't fit back in that in compartment, so it takes up part of the, the secondary bedroom's closet, and so I just, I was like, you know, hey, that's what you get. Sorry. <laughs> Funny. Um, and so the, that's it. So I just one other thing to say, pay me money, people. All right, now, uh, moving on to our own mini rant of the night, uh, listener feedback from Neva Benta asked a question that I don't even understand, but luckily, we have blockchain slash Bitcoin experts on the panel, so I can ask the question and then just sit back and, and have a cold beverage. It says, hey, Mark, I was watching Tom Merritt's podcast, DTNS, Daily Tech News Show, episode 1,300. Wow, we thought 300 was good. Um we had a guest from the Ethereum project, and the guest explained blockchain ICO. Given Miles' extensive knowledge of the blockchain and Bitcoin, I was wondering if he could take a look uh, and expand on it or provide some context. Also, Miles, you mentioned Leo Laporte a few shows back, which prompted me to, to watch Twig this week in Google, episode 418, and that show uh, was, uh, was great. This particular show seems like what Geek Rant aspires to be. Love your show, especially when I disagree. So, uh, no, I don't aspire to be um, uh, This Week in Google. They aspire to be me. But otherwise, uh, Miles, go. ICOs. Um, well, 
If you're a venture project and you want to make money, you well, you need capitalization to get started. You've got an idea, you've got something you've baited, you've got something you've prototyped or whatever. Um, it used to be in the old days that you would bootstrap it as much yourself and borrow money from your family and hock into the bank and get an overdraft or whatever, run up your credit cards and get to a certain point where you actually had something that you could then hopefully get some investors interested in and uh, you could then move it forward and, and you know make a bazillion dollars and so on. That's the old way of doing things. Um, then along came the internet and um, recently, well, recently as in maybe five, ten years ago, things like Kickstarter and GoFundMe and uh, Indiegogo, these sort of things came about. And people were able to generate capital by going out to future customers and effectively asking for donations or to get some sort of a, maybe they get an early release of something. Um, this is what happened with, uh, uh, what's that thing Facebook bought, the the 3D glasses? Um, ah, my mind is a sieve. No, um, anyway, uh, anyway, th th there's lots of projects which have been funded this way. Unfortunately, the people who contributed early on really got very, very little for their contributions. They weren't like shareholders or true investors. They were more interested parties and donors. And um, it doesn't really work. I mean, at the end of the day, for an entrepreneur to have a real application. Oculus. Thank you. There you go. Oculus. <laughs> I couldn't come up with it. I had to Google it. <laughs> anyway, um, that was started on Kickstarter and then eventually bought for a bazillion dollars by Zuckerberg and becomes part of Facebook. But, you know, the people who, who invested in the Kickstarter didn't really receive anything back for that. So it was, some, in my mind, not very fair. However, it is what it is. Well, ICOs is kind of a, a way that projects and companies can get initial startup funder, funding by selling their own tokens, their own coins, to early-stage investors, which uh, are then traded on a blockchain and eventually converted to uh, – some other form like Bitcoin or Ethereum and so on. The actual Ethereum project itself, not directly the project, but things like the DAO on a Ethereum were funded and, and done via ICOs. So, so instead of initial public offering, IPO, it's an initial coin offering, ICO? Yeah, but it... Chain offering? It, it's an initial coin offering, but it's not to be... It, it shares some things in common with IPOs, but not really. Um, IPOs are heavily regulated by the SEC. They are uh, offering early investment before a stock goes public so that if you already hold that stock and you got it at a very early price, you get the advantage of that boost that happens. Um, I guess you could say ICOs in some ways offers something similar, but they're not regulated. Uh, there is some discussion within the SEC about regulating them, but at this point in time, it's a high speculation, high risk investment, and uh, there is there is this natural inertia going on with anything to do with cryptocurrency right now. There's a huge amount of um, money coming into the space because since Bitcoin, you know, is up in the four thousands and it's been trading in a relatively stable way. There's a lot of uh, hedge funds and a lot of people exiting stocks and gold and moving into crypto. And when they do that and bring a lot of money into something, it creates a certain bubble effect and it creates a lot of um, 
there's a lot of inertia. You know, things go up very, very fast. And ICOs have been one of those things where you'll hear stories about people making millions of dollars. I mean, I've seen projects that have made $25 million in funding in 15 minutes when their ICO went public and so on. I guess it's a thing. It can happen. Um, and that's basically what they are. They're just a way for you to get an early position on something and hopefully ride it up and either sell out and get out of it or, you know, if you believe in the project, stay with it. Um, I think it's – I'll give you my take on it, and this is just not – you know, this, you take this not as advice, take this as – this is what Miles thinks. Um, it's, it's an unregulated method of investing in something, and that is uh, in a market which is now becoming full of greed and it's very, very fraudulent. There's a lot of scams out there. And I think if anything was going to tarnish the reputation of Bitcoin, it's not going to be so much the Silk Road. It's not going to be, you know, uh, the WannaCry virus and how you pay to get your files back. It's going to be ICOs and people using greed as a way to get into something and then losing their shirts over it. And I, I take a long-term investor position, kind of like a Warren Buffett. I like to know why am I investing in a project? What is it actually offering? Is it something I would want to position in? And if the way they want to get investors in that project is through an ICO, then fine. It'd probably work. But if um, if, the, if you're doing ICOs for the sake of ICOs and you're flipping them or day trading them or whatever, it never ends well, people. Uh, but that's just my take on it. You, your mileage may vary. Good luck to you. So if I really thought that Dogecoin was going to be a thing um, and I wanted to invest doge in the dogecoin project um i could uh offer them a million dollars and they would offer me a million dogecoin which is currently uh valued at uh, 0.0017 cents um but uh believing that they would someday be in the four thousand market my million dogecoin would be worth you know four forty trillion dollars instead and so is that is that a basic rundown of how an ICO would work? Yeah, it's just that that initial offering to get you into the project early on is formula uh, is formalized and has its own blockchain so that your investment is already codified and it's kind of like stock certificates but it's in the digital space. If I remember correctly, Ethereum had an ICO. Um, that's how they got their funding to help set up, or at least part of their funding to set up the Ethereum Foundation. Yes, right. That's what Nevabenta was saying uh, here was that the video was um, the uh, Ethereum project explaining his uh, that project's ICO. Right. Uh, you know, it's it's high risk. All of this stuff I've been saying for all uh, since we first started talking about digital currencies. The the things that make it good investments and the things that make it good currencies are mutually exclusive. Uh, so we'll just have to see what happens. Yeah. It, it's like, and you know, just to kind of sum up what Miles said, it's a cross between something like Kickstarter and an IPO. Um, that's kind of the things, you know, they're very careful to, even though it uses that acronym to say it is not an initial public offering because, you know, then they would be subject to um, the SEC. So it's, it's, it's a cross between a Kickstarter concept and an IPO. And, you know, you, you could win big if it turns out to be good, but you know, there are 
I mean, who knows how many cryptocurrencies have started since we started this discussion. And, you know, there's only (laughs) room for so many. Uh, Some people would say we've passed that point and others would say we haven't got there yet. Uh, And just because, you know, Bitcoin's worth over $4,000 today doesn't mean it's going to be worth anything close to that tomorrow. You know, they, they could come up with major flaws announced and people's wallets got hacked and everybody flees. Um, you know, I mean, that, that's a possibility. You know, this isn't like my money's not FDIC insured in the bank. Uh, it's, it's Bitcoin sitting on the ledger in my wallet somewhere. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, the, the, the old adage about what you invest in should be something you know something about. I mean, if, if somebody says, I'm going to create a, I don't know, a, a taco truck. And I'm going to draw, you know, it's going to cost me $150,000 to buy the truck and set it up so I can cook food. And then I'm going to drive all around the city and I'm going to sell tacos to lunch for people. And I know I can make a million dollars a year doing that. Would you like to invest in that venture? Well, you'd be nuts to invest in that venture unless you knew something about the restaurant industry, something about, you know, the, the success or failure rate of these sorts of businesses. And ideally, maybe you're, you've already got a restaurant and you know what, it, what it's like, you know, how food is prepared, you know, what the buying habits of customers are, you know, what competition's like. All these things factor into a successful venture. If you're blindly going out and buying an ICO on something that you don't know anything about, well, it's pretty obvious how that's going to end up. But if you think that everybody else is going to buy on this ICO because just cause everybody's going to buy on it and you're going to get in and two days later you're going to get out and triple your money, well, yeah, that's true. But you could do the same thing with day trading and that never ends well. So I don't know, for me, Look, a lot of people are going to disagree with me. There's a lot of people out there that love the, the the chase and they think they can get in, get out, make money, get rich quick. It doesn't end well for most people. And that's the st- statistical fact. And what they don't tell you is how many of these ICOs a year from now will go negative, will become Dogecoin, will dump. And you could be left hanging on it. So I would only invest in something that you have some familiarity with that you feel that is a good project and technically viable and you want to back it and do it and and who cares how you fund it if you fund it with an ico great if you fund it by giving them you know money orders who cares it doesn't matter if you believe in the project believe in the project and the issue with with these things right now is they're all so new the law in many ways hasn't caught up with them so you know there's lots of regulation around an ipo not around an ico um that doesn't mean that it won't be in the future Right now, it's just it's just a thing that's not even on the books. Right? I mean, IRS is still trying to figure out how to tax my Bitcoin. Um, they'll figure it out, um, and and I'm okay with paying for it. I really am. I I believe in paying uh, paying for what's due and paying for what you like. Um, so, but that's the thing. It's it's technology is moving way faster than the law, and so a, a lot of the reason that you would use alt currencies right now is to skirt the law, frankly. And to skirt regulations in this case, uh, so these these loopholes, if if these alternative currencies stick around, the loopholes will be closed. Um, th- but my hunch, honestly, is that all of these will go away before the legal machinery has a chance to to swat them down. That that alt- alternative currencies, that most of them are going to fail, and that we're going to have, you know, I, I don't I don't see Bitcoin as a long term thing. Miles disagrees with me on that. We'll see. You know, it's going to take a couple of decades to see who's right about that. Uh, I think it's going to be a short-term pump and dump, and that'll be the end of it. 
But I think that all of these things are going to fade away long before uh, legal entities in various countries can agree on how to how to process them. Well, uh, my fear is that the crypto market will go the way that the real estate market went in the mid 2000s in the United States, at least. And that is that it became so um, greedy and prices went out of control uh, because they introduced easy ways for people to go in and buy property with subprime mortgages and so on. And we all know how that went out, ended up. And if you've got a market out there based on greed, and that would be Wall Street, and not, no, I mean, I'm not saying at Wall Street it's purely that. I mean, there's a lot of important, you know, retirement funds and IRAs and 401ks that are in Wall Street. And, you know, thankfully they're making money right now. But if you've got a mentality there that I can make a thousand times my investment in crypto versus putting it on general electric stock, and all of a sudden some hedge fund manager goes, pull a billion dollars out of there and put it over there. And we see this balloon effect and this greed. Uh, uh, come in with massive capitalization into crypto, we could see the same effect as a subprime crisis maybe five years from now. Um, I'm not saying that will happen, but if you're an investor and somebody says to you, if you want to invest $1,000, I could sell you one share of Google and you might make maybe 10% a year or something on that, or you can put it in Vanguard index funds and make 11%, or you could put it in Xcoin, and make a thousand times your investment, what are you going to do? Right? And that's what will happen. So everyone hears that and goes, let's all put our money in X coin. And next thing you know, there's a couple of billion dollars into the market, which never existed before. And it just blows it sky high. On a completely unrelated note, how are your PCs behind you, Miles? Did the, did the power, did the electrician fry many of them? Um, I found out that uh, I have a Commodore 128D is over in the far corner. They're very rare, actually. I found out the power supply was what blew. The actual computer itself is fine. Um, next door to it, my TRS-80 Model 4, it's fine, except the um, SD card system that I use for all of the storage, the power supply blew on that, but apparently it's fine. Uh, I'm still trying to work out what's going on with the Apple II GS over there. But surprisingly, my Mac SE 30 survived without any problem and my K-Pro survived without any problem. Um, so, yeah, I was going to start switching them out for other machines I've got in storage and sort of rotating them through. But I thought, well, when the temperature gets a little cooler, I'll pull them out and try and fix them myself. But I realized I, I, I can't do that. I'm just not that good. So I've lined up a couple of uh, engineers to help me and I'll be shipping things over to other states to get them to fix it and hopefully get them back shortly. Because you can't just order a Commodore power supply from Amazon. Nope, nope. And I even tried looking at replacing the 128D, and I went on eBay looking for them, and I can't find them under, I don't know, $750, which is astounding what these vintage computers are worth. I mean, you buy that thing for 100 bucks a few years ago, but yeah. they're just, you know, they're rare as hen's teeth now. And a guy who knows switching power supplies will be able to replace the few components that burned out in that one very inexpensively you'll pay for the knowledge not the components yeah yeah and the shipping right all right i was just curious i saw a lot of darkness over there where there where there are usually squiggly lines so it's I thought sad I'd isn't it it's really yeah. sad yeah and i'm gonna get them moving again we got the flying toasters though those bring me comfort <laughs> there is that yeah <laughs> um okay we're already at an hour um 
So I don't know how many of these news stories we're going to go through, but I want to talk about this. There's two things interesting about this Apple story. Uh, first off, that there's going to be iOS 11, right? Um, Apple had been pretty um, content to stick with the 10 dot whatever line uh, and had pretty much, you know, Microsoft has also said Windows 10 will be the last Windows. Uh, and maybe that's why Apple decided to re- release iOS 11. Uh, but they're looking at uh, doing something that, again, was very unpopular when Microsoft cut 16-bit applications in Windows Vista. Apple wants to cut 32-bit applications. Most of the world is still 32-bit. Yeah. Well, no. And this is the iOS. So this is for the iPhone. Oh, iOS. I'm sorry. Yeah. I miss. I totally misread that. But yeah, so they are, when they do release it, they are, and they've been telling people that, hey, these 32-bit apps aren't going to work. And so, you know, of course, they get your developers to upgrade. But it's one of those, you know, when you're teaching math, 2 plus 2 is 4. It doesn't, you know, I mean, why do you need to reinvent the wheel? Why can't you just you know, have a little filter. I mean, you know, the next iPhones are going to cost like $17,000 or some stupid number like that. Just add an extra one ounce, one one hundredth of an ounce for that microprocessor that allows it to run these 16 bit apps that haven't changed and don't have any need to change because, Hey, computers are changing all the time, but you know, knowledge, once something is learned, it doesn't have to be relearned. And so, you know, forcing developers to either go in and update the stuff so it will work or just, you know, lose. It's just, it's, I mean, I understand the world's moving forward, but you don't have to reinvent the wheel to use it continually. Um, so I don't know. Yeah, I think, I'm not a coder, Miles. You can you can uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I think the actual act of recompiling an existing app with a 64-bit compiler is not a big deal. It's not a great labor-intensive thing, but it is you know a way to to in one fell swoop get rid of a lot of abandoned apps from the App Store. Yeah, the the only problem from a developer's point of view is that. Um, now, I can only say that I'm not an, an Xcode developer or an Apple developer at all. I don't do any work in that. I do a lot of work in Delphi, which is ancient, but still, uh, I can write Mac OS X and iOS apps in Delphi. Um, the problem is that in those programming languages, it's not that you can't produce a 64-bit compile. You certainly can. But a lot of the components that are plugged into your developer tool, things like grids or image handling or, um, I don't know, maybe controlling your camera for barcode scans, things like that, are third-party applications. And they may not yet be uh, 30. They may still be 32-bit and not yet converted to 64 so until all of the components are at 64, you can't be 64. So for Apple to come in and sort of mandate this across the board, um, there's a lot of uh, a, there has to be a lot of faith in everybody to come on board at the same time for this to happen, or we're going to see applications delayed in their release while their components have to be upgraded as well. And I would argue that there at this point, I don't want to say no. There's minimal benefit to uh, co- recompiling your apps with 64-bit. Um, phones don't have enough RAM for 64-bit to be an issue. Um, maybe they, maybe iOS 11, maybe the the new iPhone 8 will have you know 32 gigs of RAM in it or something. Uh, but right now, it's just not an issue. Most things don't have more than four gigs of of RAM. Um, 
and you know address space is not really an issue it's just i think it's micro apple's way of of clearing out the dross i really think that's all this is there uh again i don't know anything i'm not a developer but from my layman's perspective it seems like there's no technical reason to reason to do this that there's no inherent difficulty in supporting 32-bit apps there's no inherent instability that comes with it it's it's a thing that's been done for a long time now um and the only reason to do this is to to prune the 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 apple tree Mm-hmm. And and I'm okay with that, but why don't you just say that's what we're doing? Yeah, the only time I've ever had to convert something to 64-bit was when we were dealing with a, an application for a hospital where I had to deal with millions of rows of data that was being brought down from a database and then thrown into Excel, and, and this application sort of did that transfer. And literally the size of the amount of data exceeded the address space of the 32-bit area so by converting it to a 64-bit application it was able to deal with that amount of data but i don't see phones doing that sort of thing they're not right. doing mega number crunching like that sort of stuff well not yet but used to personal computers didn't do that kind of number crunching stuff either so who knows what the future holds yeah you're right <laughs> not long ago i actually built a spreadsheet at work that was so massive that my 32-bit os couldn't crunch the numbers every time i tried to open it uh, all the auto calculations that it did bogged down my machine and it just said no more, no more. So I actually had to get a new machine to run this one spreadsheet. Um, I'm sure that was some bit of, of, of bad coding on my, my part. I probably could have optimized this, but it was one of those things where the the time and hours of, of paying me to optimize it was less than just buying me an upgraded PC. So XL for the win. That's awesome. <laughs> So did and, you teach everybody else how to code like that so they could get new computers <laughs> as well? No, I was just in the first round. Everybody got new PCs within six months. I was just they just accelerated the curve for me. And the irony is I don't we don't use that process anymore. So that 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 thing sits idle. Um and <laughs> and I could have run it on the server using Citrix and use the server things. In fact I did do that for a while, but it was a good opportunity to jump the curve and get me a new machine. I like um, it. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a spreadsheet guy. I do things with spreadsheets that shouldn't be done with spreadsheets just because. Um, all right. <laughs> um, and now Seth says that big businesses don't want to pay for your emergency updates. That's that's just wrong. And in, 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 in light of what's going on today in, uh, in Texas, we haven't talked about that, uh, a Category 4 hurricane slammed into Texas, pretty much wiped out at least one town. Um, uh, Rockport, uh, Texas, largely doesn't exist anymore. Um, and and, gov- and then it just and, stopped. Yeah. So. And big businesses <laughs> just aren't willing to pay to make people safer. They should pay. This this hurricane would not have hit the, the coast if big business didn't pay or had paid. Yeah, Something. so of course, I mean, you know, that's the only reason this article came out when it did from, this is from recode.net, but you know, I mean, they're, they're clickbaiting the headlines for all they're worth, you know, the marketing department is hard at work there, so I wanted to help them out, but basically the FCC um, has kind of, you know, quote unquote mandated upgrading the emergency alert systems and the uh, wireless carriers are saying, hey, 
Slow down. Slow your roll. It, that's going to cost money. And we have cappuccino machines. We have golf course <laughs> fees. We have executive bathrooms. We have stock option buybacks. We can't do all of that and upgrade this stuff, too. So can you just maybe let us gradually roll it in? And, of course, you know, that's not what they would say. But, you know, I mean, who's going to be honest these days? So, um, But, yeah, carriers are arguing that some of the changes could prove technically difficult or costly to implement while congesting their networks and whenever you can and here is my reason why what they're saying is bs if there is one service or group or plan that you the customer can use that doesn't count against your data cap then it's not a network congestion issue at all because if it was everything would count towards your data cap so anyway and, you know, and this is getting traction now because I think we're on day three of, I mean, and there, there's pictures in Houston and you, you go on the web and you'll find them before pictures. You have this, you have a three tiered system, you know, the road kind of in the valley and then level across the hills is the, um, the crossroad. And then the next level up is the overpasses. And then it shows that other picture. And you can sort of make out the second level rails on the side of the road, but the entire valley's been filled up. Some places in Houston and around the coast in Texas, it's easier to measure the rainfall in feet than inches. And we've got a couple of more days of it here. And there's just, you know, it's impossible to gauge for that much water. And so with all of that happening, of course, something like this is going to make the Verizons and the AT&Ts and Sprints and T-Mobiles look even lamer than they're trying their best to look. So I just wanted to take some pop shots at them. And since uh, I am a co-host of a podcast, I'm doing that. So what do you guys think about big business not wanting to provide a reasonable path to update emergency alert services? So uh, um, cherry picking a couple of lines from this Recode article, quote, during a private call with top FCC officials, for example, Apple's leading lobbyist said the iPhone cannot currently do what Pi, Ajit Pai, the FCC chairman, has proposed. If it did make the tweaks, it might, quote, harm consumers by delaying their access to critical security information. It had also drained the Apple battery. Um, and then Ajit Pai responded with, our thoughts and prayers are with those on the Gulf Coast, and we urge residents uh, of the affected areas to take shelter and other necessary precautions. Wow, that's that's masterful politicking right there. Um, I, I don't think we need an emergency alert system. We already have it. It's called the SMS system, and it works really well. Um, I don't. I, I, I I'm going to come down on the side of Apple with this one. Uh, government doesn't need to mandate um, how they run their business. Well, but they're kind of um, wanting to tweak that emergency alert system with like either a different ringtone or something different to set it off from just a regular text message. And you could have like, you know, differentiate a geographical alerts of like an imminent storm versus an amber alert or a senior alert, you know, or active shooter alert. So being able to differentiate the updates is part of what they're saying. Um, I think from my glancing over of the article and of course the um, <laughs> Apple's reply is wah and they're like go government's like oh that's all right never mind so there's an assumption in this that every single human being in the in the United States carries a smartphone and I, I think that's a flawed assumption 
Um, yes, majority do, at least the people that I know and, you know, circulate with and are in my sort of circle of friends. Yeah, they've all got smartphones. But there is a huge demographic out there that don't. And possibly this is a way that the government could force everybody to have a smartphone. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but you can think of the implications in terms of tracking, um, in terms of GPS, and, 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 and then the telcos are going to love it because they all get, you know, basically forced uh, subscribers and maybe at the end of the day the, those that cannot afford to have a smartphone but the government mandates you must carry one, otherwise you won't get the emergency alerts and so on, may be able to apply for special funding from the government and then we start having to pay for their cell phone bill. So I'm, I'm not on board with this at all. I, I don't think it's fair to mandate technology and force it down the throat of every single U.S. citizen. Well, I, I totally didn't go tinfoil hat on that one. Nice, nice angle. <laughs> so wait a minute. You're saying it's not my right as an American to have a smartphone, Miles? Are, are, do, you, do you have the cojones to say that on semi-live drive time <laughs> podcast? I do, and I'll go one step further. It is your right to go get a damn job. <laughs> <laughs> I think that inside of 10 years... Uh, it's easy to make this prediction because this show's not going to be around in 10 years. I think that inside of 10 years, not only will cell phone uh, be a cell phone, smartphone except, uh, um, saturation be 100%, but the government, the, the federal government of the U.S. will actually be giving people cell phones. Um, the technology is cheap and the advantage of any um, government of having that kind of uh access to its citizens are such that i think that it'll be you know it'll it'll start slowly uh maybe a tax break for people who buy cell phones and then maybe a tax penalty for companies that don't uh provide their customer or their employees with cell phones but i think that there will be major government push to make sure every uh citizen of the u.s has a cell phone by 2027 and what they'll do, the free ones will be like this neon pink um, with like this four inch backdrop that you can't put a case on. And so everybody will take every last bit of food stamp money they have or EBT, and then they will go get a real cell phone because they don't want to be seen as the people on the government cell phone. Get one of them Obama so. phones, government phones. <laughs> yep. Um. Yeah, so there, there we go. I just, I saw your tinfoil hat and raised it, um, a uh, satellite receiver on my on my trailer park. Uh, but let's not leave AT and T out of the deal here. They wanna, they wanna know that uh, that they're <laughs> bad people too, <laughs> dealing again with the FCC. Yes, so um, an attorney has filed a formal FCC complaint against AT&T on behalf of three African-American low-income residents in Cleveland alleging digital redlining. So basically, the thought here is AT&T in the Cleveland area is not upgrading their networks in low-income areas with the same veracity they are upgrading their networks in the high-income areas. And uh, so it's not fair, um, you know, since the uh, government has raised the definition of broadband when they can only get 1.5 megs, they are they don't have broadband anymore, but yet they're still being charged out the wazoo for what they have. And so this attorney is saying, 
saying AT&T is racist because the areas that they are underserving are predominantly African-American. And, you know, I mean, on one hand, it's, you know, we don't need any more evidence to prove how much all the carriers of either uh, wireless, landlines, cable, satellite, how much they hate their customers and literally milk them for all they can. This is just more on the side of it. But then again, Am I going to roll out higher speeds to the customers that are paying for it? Or am I going to roll out higher speeds to the customers who can't pay as much for it? So, I mean, I can, I can see AT&T's point. Um, I don't, I, you know, of course I don't know. Are they working to upgrade? Um, according to this article, they don't even have like permits on file. They haven't gone through the process to even begin the work. And just, you know, it's one thing to say, Hey, we only have so many technicians. We've already got the permits in place or whatever, but it's another to look like the lower income areas are being totally ignored. So that's what this, the art or that's what this attorney is claiming. And he is, um, trying to get it class action status this will be very hard to prove in court he'll have to have some sort of company document expressly saying we will not upgrade uh below this address in new york for example uh otherwise it's just a um you know it's a rollout it's a project issue we have intention to upgrade our entire network but we're going to start in the strategic areas and we're going to roll out and there's, it's going to be real hard for him to make this stick. Uh, I don't think AT&T is racist. I do think they're incomest. Um, right. And I think that I think all good companies to some degree are incomest. Um, and, you know, this, this but, is, this is a bluster that will not relate, uh, result in anything good happening. But, you know, we've, we've documented, and I use that word on purpose time and time again, where, AT&T's exists in areas like this and company and we and in this particular area it's AT&T but these exist in monopolies that were created by the government you mm-hmm. know only giving access to certain groups to come in and provide this service there so if this is if this area is one of those places where AT&T is the only one who has rights, then the government has a responsibility to make sure they upgrade. So my question would be, let's say that South Cleveland has level one and, you know, we'll just make that number up. And AT&T is in the process of rolling level two access out. Well, some places are already getting level three and four and Cleveland hasn't even got level two. At which point is it? Um, hey, you need to show these guys some love too. But isn't it true that this is no different to you move to an area of town where they have the better schools so your kid can go to the better school and maybe you have to pay a little extra money to move to that area, but you get those benefits to it? This is kind of the same thing, right? You go to an area of town because they've got better network coverage or they've got better 4G or better LTE or whatever it might be. Um, I guess it becomes part of your moving decision, part of your home buying decision. Granted, if you're already there and you own a property and you're not able to just get up and move, you don't want to move, you kind of want the providers to be able to offer you a competitive range and maybe that's where the things we've spoken about over the weeks about competition plays in here. But I'm also of the opinion that, yeah, I don't like slow cell phone coverage but if all I'm needing my phone for is to check emails, send SMS messages, get these emergency alerts and so on, they're telling me, maybe check my 
Twitter feed or something, the the high speed, high bandwidth stuff is really only applicable to things like video. And is that discriminating against a class of people if you can't access YouTube on your phone, but you can still get messages and emails and so on? What's interesting is this uh, this article uh, conflates wireless and wired um, and really ignores the fact that some areas, some dense urban areas simply cannot have any new wires run. There's just no place to go. There's no... You, you can't dig can't dig up the streets um you can't run any more wires um and and i i think that you know miles to your point there is there is a need and then there is you know there's a, a not uh there, there is a, a supply and demand issue there but i think it's interesting here that they're they're lumping these two things together my at&t cell phone and my at&t uh, uh cable are not the same thing and getting them to me is not the same thing. And one of the things that AT&T decided uh, to do here is, is in this area that has low landline speeds, they said, well, we'll put up a 5g wireless broadband uh, tower in your area. And the plaintiff said, no, that's not good enough. We want our home access. Uh, again, I'm, I'm paraphrasing and skimming the article. Uh, we want our home access faster. It may be that there are technical reasons why that just simply can't happen or can't happen as quickly or as efficiently. And if you're spending, you know, twice as much money to provide the same access to this uh, new development out here where, yeah, it's the rich white people who are moving there, but it's also uh, un unconcreted ground that it's easy to dig through, uh, you're going to go the easiest and least expensive places first. Uh, and the fact that they would turn down a wireless upgrade to basically say, all right, we agree that your wired isn't as fast as you'd like it to be, but we'll put some wireless in your area. And, and they say, no, that's not good enough. I don't want it on my phone. I want it on my Xbox. Um, I don't know. It's just, it's interesting angles all around. I don't know that I have a point. I just wanted to point that out. Yeah. Not good argumentation in the article. Definitely. Um, you know, arguing one point and presenting evidence from another point and then, using those to draw conclusions on a third point you know but it makes for good podcast fodder whether it's yes. good writing or not i mean i think we can all agree that at&t as a company sucks i mean yes. right nobody's gonna argue with that um and so another lawsuit that says we now as a class uh allege that at&t sucks i don't think that's gonna go anywhere you know they're not first in the alphabet for nothing mark <laughs> um but i think also people um are quick to ignore very real limitations. Any urban area anywhere in the country, whether it's uh, affluent or not, is going to have a hard time getting new copper and or fiber. It's just, it's very difficult to do at this point in time. We've saturated everything. Uh, that's why wireless initiatives are so so big right now. We uh, We need to find ways to wirelessly compete with the wired uh, speeds. And companies are, are spending billions of dollars in that. And so in a lot of cases, they've stopped rolling out any new copper. Uh, Verizon, for example, uh, they killed their Fios program entirely because they're focusing on wireless. So there's a, this, is, this is a nuanced argument that is being presented in one line. And that's what lawyers do. That's what he's paid to do. Um, yeah. uh, but I just wanted to provide some, some nuance. Yeah, and just you know, and and we don't know what the local government plays into uh, adds into this. In the Dallas area, which is an area I'm close to, I remember it was on the news several years ago that they passed a city ordinance saying that if you dug um, 
a line in the street, you know, whether it be for like waters or utilities or, you know, telephone, cable or whatever, you had to pay to have that entire block repaved. You know, you couldn't just do the trench. You had to like repave the entire block. So that's, you know, I'm not going to invest in Dallas then if that's the, if that's the case. Exactly. I'm going to roll out a wireless network. But, you know, that comes across to the citizens. Hey, how come my home can't get upgraded anymore? Because you have copper, copper and we're not paying to have fiber run. What? That's discriminating. Yes, it is. And talk to your city council and find out why. But that's more ammunition that the big gov- that the big companies are evil. Um, when in reality, nobody wants to dig underneath in our 24 24- in our 24 microsecond news cycle, you know, the first lie wins regardless of the truth. And so it's real easy to come out and say, you know, hey, they're racist. Um, and then without digging into the article and then to write the article in such a way that you really don't even know what they're talking about. This guy's probably a really good lawyer, actually. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, but, you know, AT&T should definitely not defend themselves with money um, raised from uh uh, fake credit cards that's a bad thing uh as marcus hutchins aka malware tech is finding out yes he um you know he is the guy who uh what was it the one the one guy yeah. that he he stopped it um and then he was uh and he's from uh england i believe and so he was in the united states for one of our hacking conferences and he was arrested on unrelating charges saying he wrote this um the one of the kits out there banking malware thing even though you know and of course you know there there's he's pled not guilty and stuff but he's in raising money for his defense it turns out that something like a hundred and fifty thousand dollars in donations were from stolen or fake credit card numbers so you know it could look bad for him you know does he have did he go uh, into the deep dark web and buy some numbers and run a bat script or you know did some other hacker do that trying to get him some money um, you know it kind of makes the whole industry look a little shady when stuff like this happens so anyway what they're doing is they're refunding any um, and of course you know this is going to cost them time and money but they're going to refund any charge that is from a possibly contra- compromised number and so there's probably people who gave legitimately that are going to get refunded and they're going to have to do it again so and in the meantime you know he can't prepare for his defense because he's got to figure out if this is money coming in mine or not this is such a deep story that goes back to it goes back a while but it's it's a fascinating story because it shows precedent by law enforcement that you you can be the hero of society and save the world and stop all the hospitals from being, you know, infected by viruses and whatever. And you come to DEFCON and you give a talk about it. And as you're leaving McCarran Airport in Vegas, the FBI are there to arrest you before you get on the plane. Um, that sends a chilling effect to every other cyber security slash hacker slash white hat, whatever you want to call them, uh, that they're not going to do the right thing by the people anymore because they're fearing uh, by exposing themselves as being the hero to society that all of their back their past that that you know will come back to haunt them and they'll be the next one arrested um, and so I'm I'm a little fearful of the things that preceded his whole legal fund and how he funded it and the fact that he has even uh, been con- been arrested for this sort of thing 
Um, at the same time, in listening to a very interesting uh, expose on this whole story on the 2600 uh, Off the Hook podcast the other day, uh, apparently he was not alone. Uh, there was another uh, redacted person on the charge about what was going on that he did uh, that the uh, FBI or the federal prosecutors will not uh, announce who that person is, um, which sort of suggests that maybe they've got paid informants inside of this. And there's a whole – this thing is like one big Tom Clancy novel waiting to happen, you know. Um, and I'm just sort of – my concern with this is the effect – the chilling effect it has against the into the cybersecurity industry that nobody's going to go public with uh, solutions to problems anymore, and we all got to rely on our government to get us out of all this trouble. Well, it's the classic case of the detective who's so good at solving murders, he's eventually accused of of being the murderer. Um, you know, the 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 thirty thousand foot view of this of the FBI saying. He figured this out, and the way he figured it out, it was so deeply buried that the only way he could have known is if he'd written the thing. Yeah. Um, and and there also may be other charges. You know, there's a fine line between security re- researcher and and uh, online criminal. Um, and and I get that. Uh, but you know, I hope that the process is done and he's either you know convicted if he's guilty, exonerated if he's not. But I the the instant um thought from the internet is this is an injustice being done we don't know that and i just want to say let's let's not rush to judgment good or bad we don't know that he's guilty but we don't know that he's innocent either um and he's not being you know he's he's released on bail he's there the the u.s legal system is doing what the u.s legal system is designed to do they're investigating and they don't want him to leave until they finish their investigation he was arrested he was released on bond he's now you know not allowed to leave the country but otherwise he is free um and while the investigation continues and hopefully he'll be exonerated but let's just not be too quick to jump on the the feds as being evil when they may actually have a really good case against him and just aren't telling us. Yeah, we, we yeah, haven't because heard, we haven't go heard, ahead, heard the whole. Well, we haven't heard the whole thing yet. But what I heard was the their basis of of claim was that he had published some malware and put it on GitHub as kind of open source tech mm-hmm. uh, code, but not as intentional malware, but as Here's something that w- would work to do this thing on a computer. You cybersecurity guys have at it. See what you can do to protect against this sort of thing. I'll put it out on GitHub. Good luck to you. And that was kind of where he's what he's saying. And then some bad actor picks it up, bundles it in a whole bunch of anti-banking malware, releases it, and then they find his code in the malware and they go, oh, it was you. But in fact, no, he just put this, this stuff up on GitHub. Now, if that's the case, no one's going to put any code on GitHub because right. now you're responsible for what some idiot does with it. I mean, the, my concern is the chilling effect. It happens in so many areas here, and I really hope that the federal prosecutors are careful about how they play this. Yeah, but of course, they're not saying just that he put it on there, reading the indictment, is that he th- they're indicting that he actually sold the malware and he received uh, and distributed proceeds obtained from selling the malware. So it's not just here's some stuff up on GitHub. It's like, hey, he, he sold it. And so, you know, I mean, 
does he have a Patreon page? Does he have supporters and is, and you know, and he's posting stuff and getting paid. Is that what it is? But there, you know, he created, um, it and then he sold it. And so, and then he made money off of it. So that's the, that's their indictment. Um, and again, you know, in, in the, uh, the American legal system is doing its job. Well, the American, um, media system is doing its job of declaring him guilty. And then the American social media system is doing his job of saying the government's evil. So we have all of these forces colliding. And what happens is, you know, his legal fund takes a hit because some stolen and fake credit card numbers were used to generate in to generate money for his legal defense. Wow. That, this is going to be interesting to watch. That whole thing there, it, it just it so speaks to me. Just that last thing that people passionate about the defense of this guy are so passionate that they're not willing to kick any real money to him but they'll they'll generate fake money it, that's what counts for activism in our world today if anything falls into my pay for what you like mantra i would say this does if you want this guy to be well defended and you want to fund him give him real dang money of your own not someone else's exactly and just to round out the news show, in case you've forgotten, Verizon sucks too. Yes, so Verizon is to start throttling all smartphone videos to a maximum of 480p or 720p. Um, so, you know, no 1080p or 4K. And you say, but it's a smartphone. But this also can um, goes into effect for their mobile hotspots as well. You know, the fact that they don't want to run wired connections and they're forcing everything wireless and then the stores force you to buy these 4K TVs and then Verizon says, I don't care if you bought a 4K 3D TV. You can only watch in 720p. And um, so, and it's not like, it's not like by default they're going to do it. It's they're going to do it, and you're going to say, thank you, sir, may I have another, and like it. Um, because otherwise, you can maybe get a landline and do dial-up, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, Verizon is – Verizon, you know, they might be last in the alphabet, but they're not last in bleeping the consumer. And they just want to make sure you remind – they want to remind you of that. So anyway, Mark, Tablets. <laughs> tablets if you pay an extra twenty dollars a month can get 1080p um so you know there's that um there's nothing wrong there's nothing illegal or immoral about what they're doing they're making a business decision uh hopefully it'll cost them customers but probably not that's all i have I, to say about that yeah i mean you know i just like i say people people don't care um, because what I can only watch this cat video in 480p. Oh, well, it's just a cat video and it's going to cost me an extra 10 bucks. Okay. It's just an extra 10 bucks. People are nickel to dime to death. And then they wonder in 10 years why they don't have any money saved up for retirement. They wonder why their credit card is maxed out whenever they went on vacation last year. But you know, they're paying for their Amazon prime. They're paying for their Netflix. They're paying for their Hulu. They're paying for their Verizon. They're paying for their tablet upgrade you know they're and so it's just it's the nickel and dimes are making this country poor but making certain businesses uh and the politicians who love them uh rich so because people don't care they they will do whatever it takes to have high speed even if it's not high speed it's the best they can afford speed um they'll do whatever it takes for them and then you know 
yay, I'm a slave because I have high speed internet. <laughs> so if people were to wisen up and just say, you know, well, I'm not going to take this. I don't need Verizon. I'm going to go get, you know, track phone or smartphone or whatever, you know, prepaid plan and not going to watch, you know, I don't need to watch all this crap. Like I hated when Facebook made all their videos play by default and you had to, you know, go into the settings and turn it off because it's like, I don't want my bandwidth sucked up on that. Um, whether I'm whether I'm, you know, Wi-Fi or wireless and you just, People need to take a stand or there'll be nothing left to stand for. Um, is this the issue to, you know, die on? No, but one of them needs to be or we're not going to have anything left. And maybe it'll be better someday. But when someday gets here, I want to have something left. I like the technical way they're doing this. They're not specifically restricting uh, the the. V- uh, bandwidth. The what's the word I'm looking for? The the resolution of videos. They're just saying anything that comes across as video. Netflix, Amazon, uh, 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 YouTube, um, DTube, whatever. We're going to restrict the bandwidth available to that stream, forcing then Amazon, Netflix, and YouTube to convert down the stream to fit within the bandwidth constraints. That is a pretty clever technical hack that really frees them up from any uh, sort of, of regulation because they're just they're just optimizing their bandwidth. They're just managing the throughput of their systems like any good system would do. Um, so I think it's clever, but it's also a little debaggy. Yep. Miles, any comment? Can you hear me now? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm in Verizon. I, you got to love them. You got to hate them. I don't know. Right now, they're in my good books because they're the only service I can actually get at my house. But yeah. other than that, I'm not going to watch videos on my phone all day. I've got other things to do. Wait, but you're old. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> my kids do watch video on their phones. They have twenty. Uh, 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 Twelve. <laughs> wow. They have at their disposable 21-plus-inch monitors, uh, uh, 7 to 10-inch tablets, 65-inch TVs, 107-inch projectors, and yet they choose to watch video on their 5-inch phones all day. That's what they do. So this is not aimed at us. It's aimed at our children. Yeah. All I need is a TCY terminal. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Now, this is the part of the show where I tell you how you can feed back to us. What do you think about uh, all the stuff that we've talked about? Am I completely wrong? That's generally what the feedback is. Um, You can go to elementopielementopie.com. Just rewind that a couple of times. And uh, click the Contact Us button at the top of the page. It's right next to the tip jar button, by the way. Just saying. Um, and uh, and let us know what you think about anything that we've said here. Uh, we love to hear from our, our listeners. And now, Seth, what happened this week in history? All right, Mark. On August the 27th, 1993, Compaq introduces Passario. Oh, oh. Compaq Computer Corporation announced its Passario family of personal computers intended to be user-friendly and cheap. For $1,399, the Presario included a monitor, modem, and software to access the recently popularized online world through Prodigy and America Online. Think about that. This is 1993, so, you know, it's not really all about the Pentium yet. Um, but for $1,400, you're getting – I looked up the specs, and, of course, this is really – 
pre-internet explosion. So in I, I looked for five solid minutes and I couldn't find the specs of their initial Presario. But for $1,400 in 1993 dollars, um, even just for thir- for $1,400 today, you can buy, a, I mean, not super system, but you can buy a good quality system for $1,400 today and get more than a monitor, modem, and web browser. That sounds to me like about a 386SX yep. or a 486SX. With a VGA monitor. Yep. Yeah. Uh, uh, right around that time, I ran my own uh, computer business. It was called Shade Tree Computers. I was making a play off of the Shade Tree mechanic, and I bought components, raw components, and assembled them. And I was offering devices. Uh, I didn't start until late '93, early '94, so a couple of months after this, I was offering bargain basement systems at uh, a twelve hundred, and people were buying them every day because it was. Uh, hundreds of dollars less than the the uh, competitors. Of course, I was using Cyrix chipsets. Remember those guys? Mm-hmm. Um, they were really good for a while and then weren't uh, before AMD uh, came along. And so I wasn't using the Intel stuff. I was I was using you know all the uh, quote off brand stuff. Uh, but I was providing people with a high quality machine. Uh, my base model was a thousand. My really expensive model was twelve, $1,200, $1,250, uh, which all came in under this one. So all of that to say, fourteen hundred was not a bad price back then. It wasn't. It wasn't bargain basement, but it was. It was. You know, that's what machines were running at then, and somebody could do the the googling there. But I'm going to guess that fourteen hundred in 1993 dollars is about eighteen hundred in 2017 dollars. So uh, you know, it's roughly the equivalent of a MacBook. Uh, for what was state-of-the-art at the time. Cool yeah, stuff. It is, isn't it? It's interesting. We we seem to have always been the $2,000 every couple of years to buy a new computer society, haven't we? Well, I remember really when much. when the sub-1000 PC became a thing, um, it was game-changing. You know, you could get a machine for $999.99, uh, and it was Maybe Compaq, but I think probably Dell was the first to 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 offer that to the masses. Again, they were the beige box guys like me uh, that were offering the sub one thousand machines. But uh, you know, at that point, they were four eighty sixes, um, and but they were still like the the probably the fourteen or fifteen inch VGA monitors at that age. But when when you could buy a machine complete with monitor for a thousand bucks, that was that was game changing. And now you know if you pay more than three hundred. Uh, you've overpaid it's for that bargain basement thing. But the, it's interesting how that $1,000 number has held. You know, you go you go, go look at flyers today, an average system, monitor and, and printer and every, everything that comes with an average system runs about 1000 bucks today. We've added more peripherals, but that $1,000 number has held for 20 years. Okay, but today, 1400 in 1993 would be $2,358 oh, in Oh, way, well, way more than I thought. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And $821 today is, uh, or $821 back then is 1400 today. So, hmm. thank you, Google. Yes. Thank you. I've vamped long enough to let you do it. Yeah, so, um, and now, you know, we live in a, po- quote, post-PC era. Um most people still have a PC somewhere, but that PC is in the form of a laptop. Um, the the desktop computer, I don't know, it's not a thing of the past, but it's definitely much more rare than it used to be. I mean, I've got bunches of them, but again, I'm old. The young people just aren't buying them. They're buying laptops and Chromebooks and, and you know, calling it good. 
and most people who have a laptop, they don't, they use it as a desktop. Exactly. They set it up and they don't move it, but they bought it as a laptop. So. And interestingly, the processor in your Roku probably outperforms this 1993 Presario. Oh, yeah. I bet. Your phone probably well outperforms it. My watch probably does. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, very possible the watch does. Um. All right, I think that's all I have to say. And so now I say, Seth, what do you have to lower my productivity? That's making you, well, I can't continue that sentence this week. So what do you have to lower my productivity this week, Seth? Okay, well, I recently made a video and I uploaded it to YouTube. So um, if you remember the most interesting man in the world, the real one, not the cheap replacement they got, um, I made a second most interesting man in the world video, and I'm going to be shooting another one here whenever I can arrange with my my niece does this perfect deadpan voice. So this is a YouTube video. It has sound. It is cheesy. It was shot in one take with a cheap cell phone video camera that I only recently discovered. You can pause your video and restart it. So we, we would do a scene. We would pause, go to another place, do another scene, and then pause. And then uh, so that that's how we did did it this was one take wonder um you can watch me be the second most interesting man in the world i had fun doing it maybe you'll get a chuckle watching it i loved it It it's great awesome man keep keep doing more this is funny stuff It, it is i did chuckle um it is uh absurdist comedy and uh yeah featuring your friend and mine the gooey kid uh yeah I don't think we had anything to say, but by the way, still clicking that drop. Just, <laughs> just going to leave it at that. Uh, <laughs> thanks everybody for hanging out with us. And, um, guys, as always, miles, Seth, um, you are, you are better than I deserve. You are the wind beneath my wings. Uh, thank you for your excellence, uh, in, in, in podcasting. And, uh, I look forward to doing this show every week, even though it's 9 million degrees in my attic studio during the summer. Let, um, let me leave you with one closing point, though. Okay. I, I want to congratulate you guys for hitting 300 episodes of a podcast because that's pretty epic. And I'm a newcomer, so I'm only in the for the last 50 or so. But I really think this is so cool that you guys pulled this off. So hats off to you. Props to you guys. 300, congrats. Thanks. I Honestly, I didn't even think it was a thing. I mean – Miles has been talking about it for the last couple of weeks. What are we going to do for 300? And I'm like, yeah, it's just a show. Um, but yeah, I, maybe it's a, maybe it's a big milestone. Maybe it's not. Um, but, uh, we've been doing this for a long time. I mean, think about it. That's like six years of podcasting. It is. Yeah. Let's look forward to the next 300. Woohoo. Uh, and, uh, you know, pay me people. And that's all I got to say. <laughs>